Hello again, listeners. We are back for part two uh, of Danica Matusi. So um, the last podcast, we got to hear all about her trauma experience. And this next part, we're going to talk, we are going to completely pivot. We are going to talk about MAID, medical assistance in dying. So just, uh, I guess, a precursor to this, that I understand that MAID is a sensitive issue. I understand that not everybody agrees with it um, and that there's a lot of personal value and belief that that comes into um, the MAID process and things like that. And that's totally fine. We 100% respect uh, where everybody's coming from. It's never mandatory as a nurse that you need to be a part of a MAID procedure. Um, but just that this is something that that you may encounter somewhere in your career. So I love that Danica's back to talk to us about her spe- her second specialty. So thank you again so much, Danica. Oh, thank you for having me. So um, I know, so in the last one, you talked about your history with like your ER and your trauma nursing. How did you get involved in MAID and how long have you been been doing this for? Uh, so I've been with MAID for a year and a half now. I uh, started in 2020, so kind of right as COVID was hitting. Um, and it kind of fortunately fell very much into my lap. Um, I've been someone who always has had a passion for death and dying that kind of started within my emergency um, career, uh, learning um, a lot about uh, like a lot about death and dying. And I kind of always thought I would see my career start to shift to palliative care. Um, that's probably how much I really um, enjoy death and dying, taking care of the death and dying patients. Um, and so it was something that because in emergency, a lot of people knew that I, when it comes to the, I was like, I'll take those patients, that's fine. Uh, and what happened was, it was just one time, it was a night shift, people are just talking, it's a little bit of a slower night that night, and one of the docs had mentioned something about MAID and how he was a provider for it, and I just looked at him and I was like, oh. I said, oh my gosh, I that to me just sounds like the most beautiful thing and he looked at me he's like oh my gosh Danica like I didn't even like he's like yes you would be perfect for it I'm gonna send them an email right now and I remember thinking oh what like what does this mean and he did he just wrote an email to these the two um coordinators of made through um, kind of Edmonton and North and just said, I have this nurse that I think would be perfect for it. I work with her and this is, and he just kind of talked to me up and then, but he had CC'd me on the email. So I was like, Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and they were, they wrote me back and they said, we would love to meet you. And I remember thinking, okay, this means I'm gonna, I have an interview. I remember kind of preparing for it um, and um, looking more into MAID and the kind of just kind of thought they were going to ask me some questions and it would be an interview, an interview I hadn't had in a very long time. And But it wasn't. They just wanted to meet me and tell me all about it and that they were excited and just kind of we talked, we just more just talked and talked about death and dying and where kind of the passion came from and they were just right away really happy to meet me and have me on the team and I thought, oh, this is just, oh, goodness. And so then I... Uh, they had one coming up in a few days and they'd asked me if I could be a part of it and just kind of shadow and I did I shadowed uh, my first made case and I remember being quite emotional um, I remember just having tears running down my face as it was happening and then I remember you know just going to just touch the family and just kind of like be present with them and I thought oh my goodness like this is beautiful this is something that is everything I believe in with death and dying and I they asked me kind of after they go okay do you think this is something that you you're still okay with that you would be able to be on your own and I said absolutely um and then I didn't what but I didn't get my first one for several several months just my schedule didn't line up and then ever since then just uh, I think out maybe once a month if not sometimes like sometimes they kind of come in pockets and you get quite a few but um, it kind of all de- it all depends on when that that patient is ready and wants it and then just based on which nurse uh, there's about 10 of us that are in the Edmonton area um, which nurse is available for that day and time and yeah so it fortunately fell into 
in my laps and now also my mother is a maid nurse and um, so we kind of have this very special family bond about it and really can advocate for um, death and dying Um, and I think we've changed a lot of people's in our family and clinical friends perspective on uh, maid and yeah, it's just kind of, I think, the more we talk about it and can bring awareness to it, um, I think people are going to really start to, to understand death and dying a little bit more. It's not as much of a taboo topic as it it what has been in the past, and yeah. Yeah, and I do think because MADE is so new, um, and I mean, even though I think there's some really wonderful resources out there, I still feel like it's a little, it can be a little bit like hush-hush. You don't, you don't always know the doctors that are involved. And I think that's intentional, right? That they're not, say, advertising, you know. And, and I guess on the other hand, that may be unethical to, to do so. Um, but I, I just think it's so interesting to hear from someone that's doing this. Because all these little details, you don't, you don't know what it's like to be a nurse in, in that room or in that... <laughs> in that setting. So when you, um, I guess just a couple, (laughs) my brain likes logistics. So when, uh, when someone, uh, I guess requests made, and I know that there's quite a process to go through in terms of like being approved still, can you talk a little bit about that? I wish I had more kind of understanding of that. Um, but my understanding is it also has recently changed with the Senate. Um, but I believe it still is, uh, you have to be evaluated by two separate, um, either physicians or nurse practitioner to um, deem you eligible, I guess, for it. Like I said, I don't, I'm not a fully um, educated on that uh, aspect of it. I think there's a lot of kind of still gray area, a lot of it can be white and black. Um, and but knowing that when they do are approved they have it's been they have been worked up for it um it's not just someone can wake up one day and say kate i want to go through with made there is that process of having to meet with different physicians or nurse practitioners um and i think you know it's you're you have a uh, an illness or disease that you know you can see a foreseeable death whether that's imminently or that's in a couple years like that's still kind of that um, it's still something that I don't know how to explain it. Yeah, like that there is still that imminent death. Like your your disease process will lead to your death. And as far as I understand, so the patient, um, and, and I don't know if the process is the same, I will post, I know that Alberta Health Services, the, the site has quite a bit of information on this and the yeah. process, so I will post the link in the, in the podcast notes. Um, but I, as far as I understand, when the patient requests it, there was at some point a delay, right? So the patient would have to request it. If at any point they change their mind, they can. Mm-hmm. Um, like right up until the minute that it's that it's about to happen, they can change their mind at any point. And um, there was a delay um, somewhere in the process so that, like, like, was it to kind of make sure that the patient was sure yeah. of it? Is that kind of... It was a 10 day. So once I, once you were, got, had it got, kind of got your second approve, approval, I don't know if that's even the right word to say, um, there, there was this 10 day window where you had to, be, you couldn't choose the day within those 10 days. It had to be 10 days or, or longer. Um, and that was to give that time to really, I think, absorb and think about it and back up. But my understanding is, I believe, and once again, I'll, we'll have to, I think, add that into the show notes or, or figure that out, is the Senate had changed it where I, there is not that 10-day window anymore. So they could say, okay, I want it to be tomorrow. Um, and still, people can back out, even if we're giving the medication, at any point, they can say, I don't want to do this today. And there has been situations where I've, I've gone and I'm like waiting outside and I'm waiting for the nurse practitioner and, um, or the doctor and the patient just says, yeah, today I don't want to. They just woke up and that they were maybe having a good day or they maybe didn't, whatever reason, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. They can, up to that point, we can even be, like I said, I could have put the IV in and the doctor says again, or the nurse practitioner, um, do you want us to stop? And we could, they could say, no, go ahead. And we could be starting the medication and they could say no. And that's, they're allowed to, 
It is 100% their decision, their choice. There is no pressures whatsoever just because you've gone through the process um, and it had been unqualified. Um, you can change your mind at any point and we support that. We would never be angry or upset or mad or anything like that mm-hmm. because ultimately we're here to support this patient mm-hmm. and their decision. So this is, um, if I'm clear, this is not a procedure that family members can request uh, for the patient. It actually has to be the patient requesting it, which means that the patient has to have uh, the cognitive ability to do so. Mm-hmm. So at any point in in the process of getting the approvals, what happens then if the patient's cognitive status changes? Do they just completely no longer qualify like how does that work so once again i believe that the senate has changed it to the point that if there was oh goodness i feel like i don't want to give false information um and but my understanding is that if at some point they had when they were cognitive had voiced this that can stand um whereas before it could be if they were in within they weren't in capacity of that on that day then you couldn't go ahead of it but I believe that has changed once again that's I don't want to be spewing any wrong information or anything like that that's very much kind of my the the, the physician the nurse practitioner and kind of our coordinators um, I sometimes just get to to, to be there I'm happy, yes just to be there I don't have to have it, uh, yeah um, I mean, I should, like, I, I apologize that sometimes I should be no, a bit no, more, that's okay. but I just think that to me, it's, it's, my role is very much that day mm-hmm. and is very much to be supportive of that patient and the family and support my coworker. And, um, so there's no point to me get fully into all the logistics yeah. because, because, because really my role is just to be present in that moment. So what is the team like that that is at the procedures? Like, you, you know, you mentioned the nurse practitioner, yourself. Yeah. So it's, like? so yeah, so it's, so it's a physician or a nurse practitioner and then um, a nurse. I believe it's just, it has to be a registered nurse. Um, and we, as a team, so our, our coordinators are really great where they will connect the the nurse as well as the physician nurse practitioner prior to the um the day so that we have each other's phone numbers um you know sometimes you need a little bit more information hey just so you know this is who's going to be present um maybe there's some dynamics that we should be aware of before going in um and um, so yeah, so it'd just be the two of you walking into this house and usually we try to go in together and just kind of be supportive of one another and your it's interesting because those cases can my shortest case that I was in the house and out of the house was 11 minutes wow yes which that one is quite usually it's within an hour but and then my longest one I was there for three and a half hours and it was actually with the same uh, physician and um and I remember thinking to myself, oh my gosh, 11 minutes. But it was because that patient was ready. They didn't, they had already said all their goodbyes. They had said everything they wanted to say. The moment we walked in this room, um, the moment we walked in this room, he was just like, okay, I'm, I'm ready. And I, okay. And I remember thinking like, and he was ready. We gave the meds. And after um, he passed, I remember asking the his, uh, the wife, I said, do you want me to stay? Like, can I help with anything? Um, do you want me to wait till the funeral home or anything? And nope, I'll okay. And I remember leaving, I thought, and that was my first case. And I remember sitting in my car and I was like, that's it? <laughs> what? Like, you didn't even have time to have a mo Like, at that point, he was just, it was, but he knew. He was like, I'm ready. Like, let's, let's do this. Okay. And then, um, so yeah, so usually what it is, is you walk in as a team and, you know, you have a conversation with the, the patient, whether they want their family present for this conversation or not, um, because you, that's when the consent is signed and they are signing, yes, I want to receive the medications that will cause my death. So there's a lot of blunt information that has to be said, and sometimes that's hard for families to actually hear those words. So sometimes family are present, sometimes they're not. Um, the physician or the nurse practitioner will explain the process again. 
um, and they, the patient will sign the consent form. I witness it saying, yes, I witnessed this conversation. Uh, I witnessed this signature, um, just as if someone's getting blood kind of thing. You witnessed this. And then um, we either, I can either start the IV right away or we can ask the, the patient, do you want me to start the IV right now? Um, so sometimes it's, yeah, we'll start the IV right away. And then we just always offer if you need time, you come let us know. We will be over here whenever you're ready. And sometimes they just need um, a few minutes to just have that last bit of moment with their, their loved ones or whoever's present. And sometimes that did take three and a half hours and they're watching their favorite movie or listening to music and we're and me and the physician in another room just having our own life conversation and they come finally three hours later and say, okay, we're ready. I said, oh, or he's ready or she's ready. And we say, okay. And, and at that point, once again, it's confirming again, are you ready for these medications and waiting for their response? And, and usually it's just this, sometimes they're in their bed. Sometimes they're in a recliner chair. Sometimes they're on their couch with their dog on their lap. Um, families are playing music or have pictures it's it's honestly whatever they want and to be a part of it is so incredibly special and it's not one is ever the same and it's it's a really fascinating and beautiful thing to be a part of and you, you know you really can feel the love in the room um and just and don't get me wrong, there's people that don't agree with it. Even in that room, while we're performing this, there's still people that don't agree with it, but they respect the decision of their loved one. And that is, once again, a gift. That is a gift to that patient, that person, that you know their choices are being respected. You don't have to agree with it, but to respect it and to honor those wishes, like that's a beautiful gift you get to give that person. They get to be surrounded by, by love and, and the people that they want their most. And some people don't want anyone. And that's okay too. Yeah, absolutely. That, that was going to be one of my questions was, do you ever get kind of a, a difference in opinion? I'm assuming you do between the patient and the family member. Um, mm-hmm. And how do you handle that? Like, you know, so if something comes up or some tension comes up, how do you handle that in the moment? Um, it's interesting because so usually the provider, the one, so either the practitioner or the physician has already met this, they have been one of the assessments, so they have met this family, have spent time talking with the, the patient or the person, I don't even know what the right wording is for it, the person, and um, so they're kind of aware, yeah, they're kind of aware of if there's dynamics um, between children or spouses. Um, so we're kind of, there's always kind of a heads up and the, the person that I'm with that day will usually give us a heads up like, Hey, there's, but I've never walked in where I felt that I've never felt that energy. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I can read those rooms. Well, I think especially as a nurse, you can, you have those, those six senses. You can, you can read the energy of rooms and, um, I've never felt a negative energy. Um, sadness isn't a negative thing, right? It's something that we all experience. It doesn't have to be. So you experience a lot of sadness, but never have I experienced anger or frustration. And because in that moment leading up to it, maybe they have that, but the moment it's going to happen, they need, they, they respect their, their loved ones. It's kind of not the place and time at that moment yeah. to be yeah. sorting out all of these issues, right? Yeah. 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 And yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I think it's such a wonderful thing that when you give people the option to choose, you know, if they have family that lives in a, on a different continent, you know, if, if they have family that lives here and they haven't been able to see them for years and they want to say their goodbyes, that it really gives them the time to, to do all of those things, you know, <laughs> or if they wanted to wrap up some issues financially or, you know, yeah. it... I think there's so much power in that choice because they can say, I'm going to leave my family in such a position so that when I go, they're not going to be dealing with say my estate or my, you know, these, my, my will or my family issues or my, you know, that, that you kind of get that, 
may come up afterwards with sudden death, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. With, with sudden unexpected death. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's where my passion for death and dying and then my passion now for MAID is because working in emergency, I see tragic and traumatic and death that happens so quickly that people never get to say goodbye. Yeah. And you you see that devastation, that sadness after it, and, and you still see it with MAID. Um, but... I can't even imagine that those people that do pass away so tra- traumatically, that they would have wanted to say goodbye. They would have wanted to choose this way um, versus it being, like I said, so sudden. You, you're driving your car to work thinking you're going to go have a good day at work and all of a sudden, you know. Um, and so, yeah, so I think getting to be a part of a, something where they, they, they get this choice and they get to be surround surrounded with their loved ones. I've always said, and I think this is where I kind of explain made, is that we enter this world full of love and joy and then and to leave the world the same way, to leave it surrounded by love and kindness and respect and honoring. What a beautiful gift because we're all going to die. That is the one thing. We're not all going to get cancer. We're all, not all going to make the Olympics, <laughs> but we're all going to die. And if we can give that respect and, like I said, and create this this beautiful environment um, surrounding those ones that are, that's just a, a gift. Why would we not want to support someone's wishes with that? And, you know, it comes when I... When we have the ones that the traumatic brain injuries that come, or the the bleeds, like they're a little bit older, or, or you know they fall down the stairs and and they they look fine, but it's their brain bleed that's going to ultimately kill them. You know sometimes that's a slow death, but then once the family's there in the emergency department, and of course they're sad because it's a very it's they got a phone call that said, hey, your loved one is going to, to die. And I really take on that responsibility and that role of walking into that room and just being supportive of that family, but also letting them know, like, what a beautiful gift you get to give your loved one by being here and just surrounded by that. I said, so tell stories, have laughter, like how comforting for that person who you don't think is conscious to hear that, to hear it. Yeah, and I and I always tell people, you we don't know what they can't hear. So why not tell stories yeah. or tell them if you love them or, you know, bring some wine or just I don't know. I just think that there's so many things we can do with death and dying and there's a lot of beauty in it. If that I wish people yeah, understand like when you say it can be really beautiful. I think that is something that I have tried to explain to students many times in the past because even though my focus is not, is like my nursing career has not been palliative, mm-hmm. um, I still do get palliative patients. And there is a lot of, like you said, of, of beauty when you get a patient that decides that they don't want to fight it anymore. And I think as an acute care nurse and maybe as an, as an ER nurse as well, you almost appreciate that end of it more because mm-hmm. we fight so long and so hard for people sometimes that there is a lot of beauty in people just making the decision and, and either to change their care level or mm-hmm. to go through something like made where they get to have the ownership over their own care mm-hmm. and over their own experience. And I really feel like pa- palliative patients are one of my favorite patients to have because you're not trying to save them, right? You're trying just to make them as comfortable as they possibly can be to support the family, to do really good, like, I guess, effective or emotional nursing care. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just think uh, everyone, every one of those experiences that I have been in, I've thought to myself, I'm so privileged in my job that, that I was there for that. Mm-hmm. Because it like death death is sad, death is hard, death brings on a lot of grief, but yeah. death is not bad. And I think yeah. that's when that's where people kind of get stuck is they think that death is so bad. And mm-hmm. it's not. It's actually like you said, it's our natural body's process. And so to to be with a patient 
the moment that they pass, knowing that you kept them as comfortable as they could have been, or you respected their wishes and going in and doing a maid procedure, you know, and they're surrounded by love and their family. I just think there's, it, it makes me so proud to do the job that I do because not many people get to experience things like that. Yeah, I agree. And I, I can credit, honestly, my change in, I wasn't, I didn't always feel that way, especially when you come out of nursing school and if you haven't had a patient that had died on you, um, whether it was a palliative care or someone who suddenly, um, it's difficult. It's really hard. And I credit um, my change in my beliefs of death and dying to one patient and to an RT. And I had this patient, and I must have been a nurse maybe a year and a half, I think, and comes in and they have, they at that point, I think, were an R1 goals of care fully resuscitate. Um, it was in their 50s, uh, had lung CA. Uh, they had came in really bad breathing, needed to go on BiPAP, um, needed really to help support that breathing. Um, finally got to a point where they could just be on nasal cannula, but then became my patient from the trauma rooms is where they were. And this person was in their 50s, young, and they had he had decided to change his goals of care. And I thought, okay. Um, just, but I thought, oh, they're going to get better. This happens. Like, they just, we help them breathe, and they're, we give them all their puffers, and they're going to be fine. They go up to the unit, they're going to be fine and be discharged. And I remember it was, I don't know, I had met the family and everything, and they were going home, and... And so now it's a couple hours later, it's maybe like four or five in the morning, five in the morning, and his oxygen demands are going up. I was like, okay. Starting to see his oxygen going up. Needing to increase his oxygen now. Um, increase work of breathing. And I think, okay. Getting some puffers, doing some stuff. Um, and then I remember I came into the room and he uh, had taken off his hospital gown and put on his t-shirt. And it was an NHL team. It was his favorite NHL team. And I thought to myself, okay, well, it, well, it's kind of being weird. Like, he's a little bit more, a little bit altered in the sense, like, he ripped out his IV and put this this um, NHL jersey, uh, shirt on. And I remember calling the physician saying, I'm just, uh, something's not right. This is what's happening. Um, so they came down and they thought, oh, I don't know. And I remember thinking um, he was then back on the BiPAP machine. And he was on there for maybe half an hour. And then he just kept pulling it off. And I thought to myself, like you, like you need this, like you need this to help you breathe, because the oxygen wasn't working anymore. You needed this extra support. And I remember calling the physicians again, and they would keep coming and assessing. And at that point, they're like, I don't know what we need to do. I think we need to call the family. And at this point, this person was just like, No, I do not want this on anymore. But they were so short of breath, they couldn't even really talk. And I remember just kept calling this RT, being like, We need to put them back on. Da 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 da. And she looked at me and said. He doesn't want it. And I thought, well, he's going in my head. I'm like, well, he's going to die if he does. But, but he's going to point. die. He's going to die if we do not put this back on him. But the patient was like, I don't want it. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh. He he knows what he's he He knows this is his decision. Because the, the conversation was, if you don't put this on, you're going to die. And the look that he gave me and the look at the art, he just was like, yeah. Like, I know. And I thought at that point, it just went the flood of emotions. I had to step away and I bawled. had to call my charge nurse to come comfort me in a sense that I was just like, I can't comprehend this. Like, this person knows he's going to die and he's making this decision that I'm going to die. And I remember we called the family and we're telling the family to come in. And I remember the, the family come in and they said, just please make sure his son gets here. Oh, my goodness. I go out. This son is my age. I'm 22, 23 at this point, and I'm thinking to myself, I have to tell this person that their their dad is going to die. And I just thought to myself, okay, I have to do this. I need to say, like, this is this is the progression. I never said, but I said, you know, your your dad's getting worse. And and I remember I got this son in, and I remember it's shift change now, and I just felt very emotional thinking this. He made this decision, and I remember I walked into the room to say my goodbye. I just said. Hi, I said, I said, I just want to say goodbye. Like, you know, it was such a pleasure meeting you. And I said, you need to know that you have a very beautiful family and you should be really proud of the family that you have that's here with you. And just to validate that family and validate this patient and know, and 
he looked at me and the way he mouthed thank you, it wasn't a, I, I truly believe it wasn't like a thank you for your care. Like it was a thank you for letting me choose this. Mm-hmm. And he died 10 minutes after I left that room. And I remember thinking, we can't save everybody. That's not our role, actually. Um, and I think it was hard for to me to understand that because as, as a nurse, as a nursing, like we are there to make people feel better and to save them and to, and I've been in part, tons of things where I've had to like help save their life. And, and at that moment, this person had made the choice, his own choice and said, no. So it, he did his own maid. He didn't need, he did not want that oxygen. He did not want that. He wanted to die with his favorite shirt on and he wanted to die with his family. And we were able to provide that for him by saying, okay, you've made this choice. And he changed my entire view of death and dying and, and my practice truthfully. Him and this RT who were able just to make me understand it. And I think that came I'm learning that that comes with experience um, that now I hope that I can tell people, you know, in these types of conversations or newer nurses, like we're all going to have that a moment where we feel that, but it's these patients that will, it's, it's patients and it's moments that will change your whole view of nursing and your career and how you help people. And yeah, he was, that was like eight years ago. And he is the reason that I am a made nurse. He is the reason that I, um, believe in dying with like dignity and honor and respecting wishes and that's not an easy decision for him to have made he had a son my age mm-hmm. if he he would have I'm pretty sure in his life he would have wanted to live to 100 and, and watch grandkids and his kids get married but at that point he couldn't yeah and he knew that and of course, we don't want to die. No one wants to die, but we're going to. And for him, just that moment to say, "I, my last dying wish is I'm going to make. I'm going to be in control. I'm going to make that decision. And who, who are, who are we to try to stop that decision? Like, oh man, like what a powerful experience. And I think as yeah. you, the longer you nurse, you can definitely pick out, you know, whether it's the one you talked about in the last podcast with leadership or this one about death and dying, like I've had experiences like that as well that have kind of connected my whole root philosophy of why I practice the way that I practice because of these experiences that you're tied to. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I just think it's, it's such a beautiful thing to be, to have the privilege to be in the room with someone when they pass. Mm-hmm. I just think it's one of the most beautiful experiences ever. And the minute that you go from having a patient who's an R1 and you're fighting and you're fighting and you're fighting for them to when they decide they're going to go down to a palliative level of care, the whole energy changes. And quite often, you know, you go from a nine out of 10 stress level because what you're doing is not working. Right. And there's a reason that it's not working. And so, you know, we're trying all these life-saving measures and it's still not working. Mm -hmm. Right. And so we're just, it's just like, we're beating our head against the wall. And I mean, of course it's the patient's choice if they want to stay that. And if they want to continue to do that, that's totally up to them. But as a nursing staff, it's almost relieving when they all of a sudden make that choice. And then you're like, okay, now I can just focus on just you as a person and you know, not have to worry about the IV drips and, oh gosh, we lost this IV site and now we need another one and let's do an urgent x-ray or let's do an urgent ultrasound or let's, we need stat ABGs or whatever the case is, you know, and just really focus on like, who can I call? Who do you want here? Do you need to speak to anybody? You know, are you in pain? And like, just really take it back down to the fundamental yeah, to the to the to the basic human fundamental needs, I think is so so beautiful. Yeah, and it, and and you know, and unfortunately, you in your career, you will come across families that don't agree and are aggressive in their beliefs of disagreeing, um, and really it takes away from that patient because, um, of course, like we are selfish people as humans. 
we are in that sense where it's like you know you don't want your you don't want your mom to die you don't want your dad to die your brother your sister um so instead you just try to fight it you try to fight their decision um but it's not fair it's not fair to them and so i think it and you know and sometimes you do though you the where you know it comes into play is you really have to support those families as well um and make sure that they're understanding what's going on and support them because it, it's not easy to lose a loved one. I believe all, you know, if you haven't yet, you will. And it is difficult and it is sad and it's so heartbreaking. Um, and of course you don't want them to die, but we have to, as a nurse and as just as humans, we need to, you know, have these conversations and we need to just support one another. And it's sad because I think there are a lot of patients that don't go through with MAID because of the disagreements and the, and they're always worried about what other people are going to say or, you know, a, 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 you know, a child is just really against it. But, uh, yeah, I think as in our, we, we, we play a very important role in the healthcare um, is but that whole um, McGill model stuff, nursing. <laughs> Actually, okay, so nursing models or whatever. Now that you say that, let's get uh, nursing school oriented here. So the McGill model, um, it is a model of nursing. It was developed by Mo- I think her name is Moira Allen, and I'm reading off a website which I will post for you because I also had to look this up. Yeah. But the major focus of this model is family. Um, And the assumptions of this model is that all families possess capabilities or the health potential that serve as the basis for health promotion. So the degree to which the family engages um, in the health-related problems reflects the the experience, really. So um, it really is putting a value and an an, uh, emphasis on the family here. Um, And then it talks a lot about how that relates to health promotion. Um, and really, I guess the goals, like, so what, what this website is saying, I think it's, it, I don't know if it's a scholarly source and I apologize students for that bad, bad <laughs> teacher, um, is that it's to maintain, strengthen and develop the patient's health by actively engaging them and their families in the process. So I can see how this model would be reflected and made, um, in terms of, in terms of the whole process that you go through and the whole relationship that that is cultivated right between nurse and patient and family because it really is not just about the patient yeah absolutely so how do you like how do you support the family when you're in the house and and the patient is now either passing or passed or oh it's definitely 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 obviously a case by case um and I think just showing, walking into that into that house with warmth right away, like I think the moment if you're standoffish, then they're going to feel uncomfortable. You want them to feel like they are comfortable to be around you, to for them to express the emotions they need to express and not feel like, oh wait, there's these strangers who are going to judge me with how I'm crying or what I need to say or, um, so I think right away you have to present yourself in this very, with warmth and respect and, and um, letting them know that you are here for them and um, I think the way they see you interact with their loved one um, holding their hand or you know just the gentleness of when you're putting your IV in and having a conversation maybe laugh like oh like, what did you do today like what did da, da, da? or um, and then allowing them that freedom to ask you questions or um, and then there's times where you know that you need to maybe go and put up, put an arm around someone or allow them that safety to, to really express what they need to express. Um, and sometimes you just need to be with the, the patient and you're at the foot, the foot of the bed or, and you're just, um, touching their feet or they're holding their hand as well. Um, or creating a, an environment where you say, Hey, if you guys want to listen to music or if you want someone on FaceTime we that please like so so giving them that permission to really create whatever that they need to create in that in that time and 
yeah and knowing that we're not judgmental um with it and then I always make sure that at the end of it I always offer to the family I said you know because what it how what happens is after the patient passes away um we kind of let the family um have some time with them or we just say it we'll just if they need us to be present um and then kind of once the family um one of them or someone will come and say okay I think we're I think we're okay like they usually ask if we need anything more or or anything like that and I always offer, because then what happens right is then the funeral home is called by the either the, the physician, nurse practitioner, or the family. Um, and then the, the funeral home will come uh, at some point. Usually they, they are kind of on standby. They are aware that there will be an expected death happening because they've, probably, they've already planned their funeral for the most part. And so I always offer, do you want me to stay until the funeral home arrives do you want me to be present with you lots just say no I think we're okay um but I always want them to feel like we're not in a rush our job's not rushed we are here for however long they need and some do some ask us to stay for a little bit um they say yeah and sometimes they just need to debrief or have a conversation or maybe tell a story about their loved one um others just need to yeah it's it's it's, it's quite interesting who, who who asks you to stay or who doesn't or um, just to give them that option because sometimes I think they just don't know how to be alone with them or maybe they don't because I always that's I think actually the weirdest part of my job is not be like a main nurse but when I leave I'm leaving a, a dead body and that's when I'm like oh these families probably have never really dealt with this um so that's always so I, I always offer do you want me to stay like I can just be there with you so that they're not alone with a, their loved one who's yeah. passed away yeah that's not something that's actually occurred to me until you said that I can see how yeah how challenging that could be for a family member if they're not comfortable with that or you know because I, I think we working in the hospital we have closure on a lot of those things in terms of like you know you see the porters come up and get them you know that they're being taken to the morgue or whatever the case is or picked up by the funeral home but but that idea of like just leaving a place and kind of leaving it behind it yeah I can see how that would be a, a yeah. challenging part right and that you you would have to be sensitive to that yeah so, and yeah some of them say you know the one time the first time someone said yes it was they just said, are you sure? And I said, of course, we just, and me and the physician just stayed there. I said, of course, like, and I remember we just shared stories and we laughed and um, just a way, I think it was her way of debriefing because she was by herself and, and it was just a really nice, and then she just kind of said, okay, look, I think I'm good. I think I can be by myself. And we said, okay, that's fine. If you need us to stay and she's like, no, I think I'm okay. Okay. Man, like what what amazing family-centered care as well, right? Yeah. In terms of just, you know, you're not just there for the patient, but you're really there for all intensive purposes for the family mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You know, and, and like I said, I think that really takes us back to the fundamental, you know, to, to fundamentals in nursing is that family-centered yeah. care and how to practice family-centered care. Yes. Like there's been times where I've been where there was 30 plus people um, right when we arrived and there was... Tim Hortons coffee and alcohol and it was just like whatever they want whatever it's eight in the morning uh, they're putting Bailey's in their coffee it's like perfect like um if that's what you want what like it's a part to them one of them was like a huge party and so there was like 30 plus people and then there's been ones where I was the only I and the physician were the only people present um so it can be this wide range of um of experiences with them. Yeah. I guess it really depends on where the family stands with it too. You know, if the family really embraces the fact that the patient is choosing this and says, okay, you know, of course we don't want them to die, but if this is what they're choosing, let's make the best out of it or whatever the case is. I think like what a cool experience. So in terms of like uh, the types of, of people that, that you go in and see, like, I know you have quite a, a wide variety. Can you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about that in terms of, you know, patients' age ranges or situations or? I, unfortunately, like I have been a part of, the youngest I've been a part of is in their thirties. That was my, one of my most challenging ones, um, just because being in that age range and, um, you know, 
having, um, you know, they had, there's, there's children involved and, and even more, I think you realize the power of maid when it's, um, like I said, I'm not, a, I'm not a mom at this point, but I can only imagine what that decision would have to be for a mother, for a parent to say, I'm going to, I'm making this decision and leaving my small children. Um, I think it shows how much people do suffer through their disease process. Um, and like to make that, to have to make that decision, never an easy decision, but how bad was it that that was her decision? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it was, it was, a, it was a very emotional um, day that one. And, but you just felt the love in that room and you felt this relief from her almost, um, which once again, like, if that's what people are feeling, how can we, who are we to judge that this is like not the right thing? This is not the thing that something someone should do. Yeah, and I think um, until you're walking a mile in that person's shoes, oh, you, you don't know, you don't know. No, I, and I think that's where this, where people who maybe necessarily don't, is because they can't wrap their head around it. They can't, it's hard to put yourself in someone else's shoes to understand that. Um, but it's, that's, it's never, it's never an easy decision for someone, but I could imagine it's not, but others, it is an easy decision. Some of them, it's a very easy decision Yeah. because of what they're suffering through. And there's ones, honestly, you walk in and you would never even think they were unwell. You would never, you were like, I'm pretty sure I probably saw you at the grocery store, like by yourself. Yeah. Like there's just ones you would never. And then there's others where you're like, okay, I can see where your progression is actually probably your, your expectancy isn't very long. Um, and then there's others where you're just like, oh, I, I sit all day and hang out with you and talk to you. And I love these stories. And your family is like, I've walked out of rooms or houses being like, that was just I could have I could have spent this whole day with this these people and and it makes you sad because you're like oh but then you go what must you be experiencing that this was ultimately your decision and yeah it's yeah there's and and I think people think oh well do you ever cry and I think oh all all the time And there's ones where you're in there and it's just, you're like, at this point, thank goodness we're wearing masks because there's blubbering under there. And I'm pretty sure there's snot running down my nose. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so of course, like there's still, I get very emotional at these ones because I think you, 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 you put yourself in that family situation. Oh, what would it be like if my mom was going through this or my dad or my sister? And so that's where you kind of that empathy. And that's something I would, I'm so proud of is my empathy in the sense that I can really under, I I really take pride in under trying to really understand what people are going through and their emotions. And um, so it gets you, it kind of just, these tears go and, and I think they feel that, that warmth then they're going okay this isn't just someone who's stone cold who just comes and does this and they leave like no this is this affects them as well and it was interesting because my um my co-worker so one of the my physicians does um made and that's how I got into it like I had said and he had made a comment to someone because they said um he had said he likes doing his cases with me, he, that he often will try to ask if, if I'm available or whatever. And, and someone's like, oh, well, why? And he says, because what I do is really difficult. And to have someone that I have a relationship with and that we, are, we support one another, to have them there can make that a little bit, because no matter how many you do, it's still not, it's still not easy. You're still, someone's still passing away and someone is still sad. They're losing their loved one and that's heavy. And there's a lot of emotions in those rooms and even within yourself. And so, and I thought, Oh, okay. Like it's, you know, we are, we are here. We feel these. And, and I feel that too. I always enjoy doing them with him because then I get, like I said, I know I have that, that safety, that comfort of uh, someone. Yeah. Who, and, and that team support, right. That, yeah, that you're yeah. together. Absolutely. 
Yeah. Oh man. So how, how do you, like, I think like when I talk to you about the trauma stuff and when I talk to you about made and, and I know that every day is not maybe as emotionally heavy as others, mm-hmm. but how do you personally, like, how do you keep yourself healthy? Because I've definitely gotten to the point in my career where I am concerned about my mental health and concerned about my emotional health because of the things that I have experienced in my job. Mm -hmm. How do you keep yourself healthy within these experiences that you're having? Yeah. So first of all, I think that that was really um, important. What you just said that you acknowledge that you are experiencing some like emotional and mental like. The thing is, is that we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't talk about it. And I also suffer from that, um, a lot of anxiety mm-hmm. about things. And it's interesting because what I think my anxiety is about, I actually think there's probably a lot of underlying um, unresolved traumas and stuff that have happened, like whether it be at work and seeing things um I've been a part of some really intense moments at work, but very beautiful. Something that I do, um, so I would say that I had noticed in about probably about three years ago, um, just not my happy self. I don't know if you can tell, I'm usually a very like bubbly, happy person, and that's mostly how people see me, especially at work. I really try to create this positive environment around me. And I was really struggling and there are some personal things going on, but then I felt like at work and I was like, I love my job. I love what I do. Why am I, why, what's going on? And I, once again, I listened to a podcast um, and this was this emergency physician. He, um, this, he normally has um, like hour long episodes and he had a, uh, it was an eight minute episode and I was driving to go see my best friend on the highway and I almost had to pull over because I felt this wave of, of like, whew. and he had talked about how he was kind of going through that same thing, how he was experiencing these moments where um, he would go home and dwell and he then goes into his personal life and, you know, feeling, questioning yourself as a physician or questioning yourself as a coworker, as a husband or a father. And he said, you know, I keep going home and I would dwell, dwell, dwell on all these awful things that had happened, uh, especially coming from an emergency background. And he said, what I started doing was writing three good things at the end of each shift. And he says, I would go home and I would write what were, he would say to himself, what were three good things that happened today and how did I contribute to it? So instead of going, oh, I had a 25 year old cardiac arrest that died. Instead, he went, we had a 25-year-old cardiac arrest, but we had great teamwork and communication, and we supported our team. So changing negatives into positives, and it's not easy to do, but it is something that I have now done. Um, I What's called a five-minute journal, and these five-minute journals, it's a morning portion and evening portion, and the morning portion, you have to write like three good things, three, three things you're grateful for. Um, two things you that would make today great and a daily affirmation and then the evening one was what were three good things that happened today and I started doing this routinely and I started realizing that actually that was changing the wiring in my brain I no longer even had to write them down it's just something that I would do so you're in a busy shift and there's everyone complaining oh my gosh what a busy day and instead I'm going oh busy day like we got a great team we have a good like da, 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 da. like everyone's getting care properly and I started realizing people were just like Tanika like how are you always so positive like I almost joke that I'm annoyingly positive but I just thought we can't I can't change that it's busy I can't change that it's busy I cannot change that there's 50 people in the waiting room but what I can change is how I choose to view it and how I choose to carry my energy with it. And that is just something that I consistently do. And don't get me wrong, do I still have days where I'm like, everything builds up and I just need a day by myself and I cry in the shower. And I, but what I do is I give myself permission to feel that way that day. I said, okay, I'll sometimes I'll text someone and be like, today's a pity party. And there's nothing that can do to make me feel better, really. 
I just need to feel that, ugh, I need to cry it out. I need to order my favorite food and sit on the couch and watch useless TV or whichever. Yeah. But I but I give myself the permission. Instead of trying to get out of it, I just allow myself, today's one of those days and that's okay, but tomorrow you're going to feel better. And you wake up and you almost feel silly how crappy you felt the day before. Yeah. But you said, I needed to do that and I needed to experience that. And so that's what I would do is like, and so now when I see my coworkers having a tough day, it's not, I don't say like, what were three good things that happened? I just say, like, tell me a good thing that happened. Yes, you're, you're a new nurse and you are struggling and it's, you're feeling like you can't get your feet off the ground, but like, what was something good that happened today? And instead of them dwelling, oh, well, I had to get all this extra help. It's like, well, that's great because that means you asked for help. So let's go with it. Let's go home at the end of the day and say, a good thing I did today was I asked for help yeah. or I recognized that I needed help instead of it being a bad thing. And so that's what I had started to do. Um, and I've done for like the last three years. And it was the best thing I could ever do. And this is a five minute journal, but then changing the positives into negatives and realizing I can't control certain things, but what I can control is how I react and how I view it. And, you know, it's it's quite contagious. You start to see those coworkers start to do that. And, you know, I can't, once again, I can't change that there's six car accidents that all need to come. But what I can change is like, hey, we're going to get this one done. We're going to deal with it. we got a good team. we got communication. And we're going to make this flow. And we're going to maybe go for a bit after work. It is an absolute game changer when you walk into shift and you think, yes, we have the best team tonight. Because mm-hmm. you know that no matter how crappy that shift goes, you know that you can handle it together. Like that to me is a game changer. And mm-hmm. I remember walking into work a couple weeks ago and there's this one LPN that I have worked with for a while and she's one of my favorite people ever. And I was like, Oh my goodness, I got like five or six in a row that I have to do. Like, you know, the first shift. And then I looked at the schedule. I was like, we're good. I got you for the next couple days. We are going to be fine. You know, like, and it was just that moment of, I'm so thankful for the people that I work with because they, they, I, I feel like it can either make or make it or break it. Right. A lot of these experiences are the people that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. What a great, um, like personal coping mechanism. Cause I think it's really easy in this job to focus on the negative mm-hmm. and to feel the stress and to feel heavy and to feel, to feel everything that comes along with doing a difficult and an emotionally difficult job. Um, and I also think it's really important that, that people, that if you're feeling that in your career, that you're sitting with that for a while and Mm -hmm. really recognizing like, why am I feeling this way? And I have said this to my students time and time again, if you are showing up to work and you're frustrated constantly and you're exhausted and you don't want to be there and you're mad at your patients all the time for like, you know, dumb stuff that you shouldn't be mad at it's either time to do some personal reflection or it's time to move on and pick somewhere else to work and learn something new Mm -hmm. because this, this career is too big to sit in a job and act like this for your entire career. And so even though, even though reflection, I'm sure students just hate personal reflection. I remember I used to hate it. It is one of the most useful tools that I have ever found in my nursing career is being able to sit and recognize why you're feeling the way you're feeling. How did I get to this point? What is going to make me feel better? And like, how can I get past it? Like now what? Now what do I do with this? Absolutely. Because I was saying, I always said to my nursing students too, when I, as a preceptor, um, I said, once you leave nursing school, like, you're not, you're on your own in the sense that you're not getting marks to, because you know all your pharmacology and you're not bragging to your instructor that you did these things to try to get a good mark. Like, cause I always said, you have to tell your instructor, your instructor can't see everything. So you tell them, Hey, I got this goal on my first try, or I was able to recognize my patients not doing well because that helps factor into like, Hey, this is a nursing student marks and all that stuff. And I said, so when you're, once you leave my care, once you leave 
you have that RN behind your name, like there's nobody sitting there patting you on the back anymore. Mm. You have to do that yourself. You have to find ways to pat your back because the first thing you want to do is like you get this hard ID. You want to be like, oh gosh, I got the best ID. Okay. Yeah. But you're like, nobody cares. And everyone's like, right? good, you uh, were supposed yeah. to go get that. You did your job. Good job. Right? <laughs> and so, and that can be a really hard transition. That's yeah. the hard transition from a grad nurse or from a student nurse into an RN is that you're usually trying to find some, you're seeking validation at times where you're used to for four years. And all of a sudden you're like, oh, no one's here to like tell me what a great job I did for recognizing that my patient is now like super sick and I recognize it early enough to tell the doctor to get meds so yeah so go home and like write those things to yourself these are the great things that happened today like you have to give yourself that validation and you deserve that pat on the back like of course you deserve that pat on the back that you got that hard IV start and you recognize that that you deserve that pat on the back but no one's going to give it to you you have to give it to yourself yeah and that's what's really important is understanding that yeah Awesome. Okay. I have one last question. I'm sorry we got off on a tangent, but I have one last question about MAID. I just wanted to, uh, I wanted to touch base about the medications that are actually used because this is a question that I get often from students and I sometimes think I know what they are and then hear, hear different things otherwise kind of through the grapevine. So can you just talk us through what medications that are actually given to the patient? Yes, so the first one is um, midaz, midazolam. So kind of that benzo sedative kind of really relaxes them. Um, a lot of times at that point, they'll start to close their eyes. Others will kind of still be awake. Um, it's quite interesting that the, the range of how, how the patient responds to it. Then they'll flush it, and then they'll give what we, uh, some lidocaine. Um, and the reason for that is because the next medication is propofol which is can really sting and be uncomfortable so you never want the patient to feel uncomfortable or um, feel that discomfort so they get the lidocaine followed by propofol um, sometimes there's um, can be up to I think it's a thousand milligrams of propofol if I'm not if I'm not mistaken so as a nurse we don't give medications it is the physician or the nurse practitioner we document um, when the meds are being given, um, and then usually at that point they're pretty sleepy. They're they're by the second or third they're um, pretty much gone apneic. Um, sometimes they're snoring rest, so you'll kind of position them a little bit so that the family doesn't have to hear that. Um, and then the last medication is rocuronium, and that will be. And then usually it's about a minute after that that they'll auscultate or cut right after that auscultate for heart sounds and um, time of death. And rocuronium is, I'm uh, a neuromuscular blocker? Yeah, like a paralytic there. Paralytic, okay. Yeah. I'm making my own notes because I, like I said, this is a question that I'm asked frequently and I always say, I know that propofol is in there somewhere. Also, side note, I had a, I had an a seasoned nurse. I'm going to refer to her as a spicy nurse. She was seasoned. She'd been nursing forever. When I was in my preceptorship, I was doing the, um, I was doing the OR stuff with her and the patient asked what medication they were going to give in the OR. And frequently it's like fentanyl and propofol. And she told the patient that they were going to get the Michael Jackson concoction. And I thought I was going to die. I was like, how could you say that to somebody? And the patient just looked at her like, what? what? So like, you know, it's like funny, not funny. An example of not good therapeutic communication. Oh my goodness. <laughs> so I do, like I did know about the pro, uh, about the propofol and the medaz, but the other two are really interesting. I think that's a really good like insight into kind of what the procedure is like. Yeah. Well, Danica, I've taken up so much of your time today. Do you have any final questions or thoughts or? Um, no, this was really fun. And I feel really like also honored that I was asked to be a part of this. And, you know, I, I enjoy uh, mentoring and teaching. And I think this was a really great way to um, kind of talk about my experiences and hopefully that I've inspired others um, in their way of nursing and how they view um, 
made or death and dying in general or trauma, um, but also with, you know, your mental health and um, coping mechanisms and just know that what we do is really can be really hard, but it's really impactful and you have a lot of, um, you can make a really big difference in a lot of people and you might not know that impact necessarily um, right away, but know that there's a lot of people that are very impacted by um, nurses and the care that you give. So give the best care that you can. Well, thank you so, so much. Um, is it okay if I, I, I just want to ask your permission to maybe put your email in with the podcast information and that way if students ever have questions about what we've talked about or if they, you know, if they want to use you as a resource or something like that, if they want to talk to you about the pause or anything like that, anything that we've talked about in the last two episodes, are you okay with me doing that? Absolutely. I would, okay. I would be, I would love that. I'll put your work email in there. So okay. <laughs> you have a little bit of anonymity in there. I, I oh, feel like okay. here's Al Danica's social media platforms and yeah. uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so, so much. It was great to talk to you and uh, hopefully we'll get to talk again soon. Yes. Sounds good. Thank you.